0: Today in our sermon, you don't need to stand uh, for our reading because we're going to go through the reading as, as I preach, uh, an opportunity to take it slowly and understand what's going on and digest what's going on as we go. But today we'll be hearing John chapter 4, the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. And I'd like you, as we, as we prepare our hearts for the message, to think on what we just heard happen in Exodus for both our stories of thirst and both our stories of God showing up to satisfy thirst. So let's begin. Our story begins today with Jesus coming to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. And so far in the the reading we just heard, we're setting the scene. Jesus is at Jacob's well because he's thirsty, and it's hot. The sixth hour of the day isn't 6 a.m. like we might think. It's more like 11 or 12 in their culture. And note, this brings us to our first similarity. It's hot, Jesus is thirsty, just as were the Israelites In the wilderness, both stories are about the need for life-giving water and the place where it can be found. So our gospel continues with a woman who comes from Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for he couldn't ask his disciples. His disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And here we have that second similarity. Jesus asks for a drink just as the disciples did. And yet, here the, both stories pause for similar reasons. Both Moses and the Samaritan woman hear this request and they go on the defensive. Moses says to the, the people of Israel, why are you quarreling with me? Why are you testing the Lord? And the Samaritan woman likewise goes on the defensive as she says, How is it that you, a Jew, are asking for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For John tells us, John wrote this gospel. John says, the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. They want nothing to do with each other. So their reasons for being defensive are different. Moses thinks that they're on the attack, and he's right, and the Samaritan kind of suspects that Jesus is on the attack, but for different reasons and in different ways. But this is where the similarities between these two stories begin to fall apart. See, the Israelites push when Moses brings up this wall. They want to knock the wall down. But Jesus, Jesus turns the tables on this woman. He says something completely nonsensical to her. He says, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, I've always already pointed out today the unusualness of this phrase, living water. But the woman points it out too. She's confused and rightfully so. When the Israelites in the wilderness ask Moses for water, imagine if the Israelites had done what Jesus just did here. The Israelites would have had to say, Oh, Moses, we asked for water, but we actually had water the entire time, and it's actually better than the water that you would have given us. Moses, you should have been asking us. This scenario is complete nonsense, would never happen, but it's basically what Jesus says to her. You would have asked me, and I would have given you living water. And the woman points out the absurdity of this. She says, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Where are you going to get it? She says, are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock? Now, she clearly thinks that initially that Jesus is talking about normal water. But what Jesus makes, says next makes clear that he can't be is definitely not talking about plain old water as we might think. He's talking about living water. Here's what Jesus says. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Living water, as Jesus calls it, is not normal water. It's better. It satisfies forever. Jesus says it wells up to eternal life. Now, obviously, if anyone on the street said this to you, offered this to you, you would be confused. I hope you would be skeptical. (laughs) But the woman, strangely enough, doesn't seem to be. For whatever reason, she seems to believe him. She says to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty, or have to come here to draw water again. She trusts him. I mean, Fantastic as that may be, she seems to trust him. She says, okay, if you have it, give it to me. Wouldn't it be nice if that was the way that the Israelites had treated Moses? But they don't. <laughs> they say to Moses, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? They, they push and they complain. They're bitter and they're grumbling. And, you know, Moses is often portrayed with a full head of hair but these stories make me wonder sometimes if that's accurate. I mean, all I'm saying is if I get to heaven and find out that Moses is bald, I will not be surprised. <laughs> but, but whatever the case, Moses despairs. He despairs at what's going on. He cries out to God. They don't trust him. They don't trust God. Moses says to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're ready to stone me. Which means they're ready to kill him. And note how strange this is. These Israelite people who should have the most reason to trust, absolutely, who should trust that God will take care of him, care of them. He's brought them out of Egypt. He's fed them in the wilderness. He's shown them himself at, at, the, at Sinai. He's done all kinds of amazing things. These people should have who should have every reason to trust do not trust. And this woman who barely knows Jesus who hasn't seen a miracle yet who's hearing outlandish claims she seems to trust just implicitly she seems to trust and this trust becomes all the weirder as the story continues. For you might say that the Israelites' trust, or sorry, the Israelites' doubt, their mistrust was rewarded. They got the water they asked for. They didn't get disciplined or chastised. God doesn't say a thing to them to point out their misbehavior. But Jesus, when this woman trusts him implicitly, he does the opposite. He doesn't give the water right away. Instead, he drives this woman into a really awkward position. As he says, go, call your husband. Go call your husband and come here. Now this forces the woman to answer, honestly, I have no husband. And not just that, but Jesus says to her, you're right in saying you have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, as you hear this, and you imagine being the woman in that moment, her eyes are going wide. She's feeling really small. Her face is going red because her shame, her guilt is laid out right there in the open. She has so much reason in her culture for shame. And Jesus is pointing it out not indelicately that he knows. It's almost as if her faith is not rewarded, it's punished. And it's worth pausing here for a moment. For maybe you've heard the expression afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. This idea originally applied to newspapers, but it's come to be associated with preaching. Preaching tends to do that, especially Lutheran preaching. It afflicts people who are comfortable and complacent and says, hey, careful, God's law actually says this. And then when they are feeling uncomfortable, feeling afflicted, preaching comes in and the gospel, the good news says, but God forgives you and he calls you his own. He calls you worthy in spite of your sin, in spite of those things you've done wrong. And then the tricky thing is sometimes the law can come back in and start making them feel guilty again the moment they're comfortable because, the, well, they've become complacent or they've become proud or whatever the reason. The law comes back in and afflicts them again. And then what comes back but the gospel again, to preach to them again and to promise them to them again and to welcome them in again. So the, the law and the gospel go back and forth, and the good news and the, the law, the bad news, you might say, go back and forth in preaching and our experience of it. Is that what's happening with the woman? Well, you might say the principle is similar, but I wouldn't say that the woman who's standing there guilty is feeling comfortable at all. Ashamed there, not comfortable. Instead, Jesus is afflicting her because she has faith. And that might be totally counterintuitive. (laughs) Why would Jesus want to, to push and prod and pressure a person who's doing it right, we might think as Lutherans? Well, it might be counterintuitive until you hear what God says in the letter to the Hebrews. In Hebrews 12, the scripture says, "'The Lord disciplines the one he loves "'and chastises every son whom he receives.'" Just like a parent, the Lord disciplines, pushes. Like a good coach, the Lord pushes the one who needs a push because he loves them to be better, to understand more deeply. And that's what Jesus is doing here. It's what we should expect in our lives too. Occasional pushes out of complacency, out of pride, out of all kinds of sin because it's good for us. Because God loves us. Here Jesus pushes because this woman doesn't recognize something critical. Where to worship? Where to worship? The Samaritans had a problem. They believed you worshipped in the wrong place. And so what we're going to find is is there's a big debate. and, And the woman comes to Jesus to get this question answered. But before we do that, before we come to that question, note that God doesn't discipline. God doesn't push Israel. In the wilderness story that we heard just a moment ago, what happens when Israel goes to complain and is bitter and grumbles and almost drives Moses to pull out his hair? God gives them water. He doesn't push at all. We dis- discipline at all, and we might think, well, then God must not love them. But that's not the case. The reason God doesn't push them is because he's being patient. He recognizes how weak their faith is, maybe even non-existent if you read the Scripture. And he says, I'm going to double down on showing them love and patience and kindness and faithfulness even though they are unfaithful to me, I'm going to be faithful to them. And he gives them water. And that might sound like a happy ending, but this place, Massa and Meribah, where this happens, becomes known as one of the greatest tragedies of the Old Testament. It's referred to in the New Testament as a great tragedy. So let's go back to the gospel and, and see how the woman responds to Jesus' discipline. She says to him, "'Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet.'" She doesn't deny her guilt. She doesn't deny her shame. She says, "'Okay, sir, um, you know me, I take it. Uh, But I, I see you're a prophet. You know something you shouldn't know. So let me ask a question. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain But you say, you Jewish people say that we should worship in Jerusalem. What should we do? Well, Jesus says to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Yes, the Jews are right, Jesus says, but the hour is coming and it is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. This is the moment where Jesus rewards her faith. This is the moment where he gives her living water. He tells her answers to her question, yes, But he then goes on to reveal things to this woman that he reveals to nobody else, answers questions, gives her beautiful answers to comfort her, strengthen her, and welcome her in as a follower, even though she's a Samaritan. And this woman seems to acknowledge this amazing thing that's happened. She says, I know that the Messiah is coming. When he comes, He will tell us all things. And note, this seems to be what Jesus is doing for her right now. Then Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. Two gospel stories. Two two stories of the Bible. One Old Testament, one gospel. Completely different. The same premise. Thirsty people. Life-giving water. God stands in their midst. But why are they so different? Has God changed? Has the Samaritan earned it? Is is she more worthy? Is she less sinful? No. No, there's there's nothing about this woman that should should lead her to believe, lead, lead us to believe that she's in any way, shape, or form better than those Israelites. In fact, on the sinful count especially, we know she's got a lot to answer for. What what about these stories makes all the difference? The central difference is faith. If we can get our next slide. The central difference is faith. Simply put, Israel doubts. Israel doubts God is going to help. Maybe they doubt he's able to help. They certainly doubt he's willing to help. And so they come to complain that they're gonna die. But the Samaritan woman, On the other hand, she's mistaken about where God is present. She's a great sinner. She certainly hasn't done anything to earn it. All she has going for her is that sure and certain hope that God will eventually come to sort out the differences between Jews and Samaritans, that God will fulfill his promises to her and to generations of people, that when God shows up, and is present, things change. Debates of centuries change, lives change, her life can change. And the amazing thing is he dies. (laughs) He shows up in her life, he changes her life, And, and we could go on in this story to see how she responds, but the point that we need to see is God showed grace to both Israel and to the Samaritan woman, but who is the one who walks away with living water? It's the one who trusts the promises. It's this woman. And if you have ever doubted that when we come to this place and God's presence enters this place and God's table is set before us, that things might change for you, then we have a lesson to learn too from this Samaritan woman. For God came to that cross to change your life, to be present in your life, to break down the barriers that separated God and man, to welcome you in as part of a family (laughs) that started with this Samaritan woman. This is a beautiful promise. God can change your heart God certainly forgives your sin at that cross. So may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in this present God, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We pray. Dear God, Heavenly Father, we we thank you so much for sending Jesus to be present among us here in this place, here in this place, before that Samaritan woman there at the cross. We ask you to give us that full confidence that that Samaritan woman had, that in in your presence, things change. When you enter the room, hearts are transformed. When your spirit is there, you are too. Bless us to go out today into our daily lives to carry that presence and that hope to the people who need to know it most. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.